two. Keep in mind the key passage of the book is chapter three, verse fifteen, which I've brought to your attention a number of times and fitting to do so, which simply says that this book was written, this letter was written, that we may know how one ought to behave, and the household of God, or family of God, was, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so as we go to chapter 5, Paul is getting very specific. How do we act as God's family? How do we regard one another and how do we talk to one another? Um, he goes even more detail in chapter 5 throughout, but we're going to just kind of stop on the first two verses of, our, of chapter 5 this morning. And it occurs to me as we talk about the family of God, uh, it has a rosy picture. I found that there are certain phrases that probably should just die, um, such as, I slept like a baby. This is not a compliment. It's not a good thing. For those of you who think it is, it's just because you've forgotten or you've never experienced what it is to have a baby sleeping. It is not a positive thing to sleep like a baby. Um, and I think maybe as you get older, you do tend to go towards sleeping like a baby and let you sleep every three hours. And you might wake up crying. <laughs> Funny how you go back to how you started. Um, and then I think that might be similar when we say we're just like a family. That's not always a good thing, is it? Um, I think that for those of us who may say that and, and say it in a positive way, perhaps it's, it's because we have selective memory. We, we remember maybe the good times of laughing at a table and we forgot about the the bickering at the table. Uh, we might remember the, the beautiful uh, family vacations looking out of the Grand Canyon, but we forgot about the, the week's car ride, getting there, and the, the inevitable arguments on the way. Um, when, I, when I think about family life, I, I do think about those good things and the sweet memories, but right now it's also filled with, uh, okay, y'all stop fighting. Um, uh, okay, yeah, let's just share the toys. All right, y'all just be kind to one another. I'm, I'm tired of being referee. Y'all just love one another, all right? Uh, and, and, and that's kind of uh, the conversations as it goes. Uh, when we're at the, the, what some people call the peak of family life, when you've got a, a, a three-year-old, five-year-old, ten-year-old, twelve-year-old, uh, and, and you've got all the ages there, and it's, it's um, sometimes sweet, many times exhausting. Um, and so... When we read 1 Timothy 3, and it says that this is God's family, and treat one another, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, as family, we'll get the full picture. Alright? We'll get the full picture. And so when we talk about church being a family, it's the good and the bad and the ugly, all together. But we are influenced predominantly by the fact of who we are. The church is not a corporation. The church is not a business. The church is not an organization. It does involve organizing. But it's not what defines us. 
We are an organism in being a body of Christ, and we are members, and unlike any other thing can be a member. In fact, any other group that uses the name member is a knockoff from the church. In fact, the only thing that can be a membership is either your physical body and that you have members of your body or the church and that we are Christ's body. And as such, members that belong to one another all under Christ. And so we're utterly unique. And it may be that groups of people takes clues from the spiritual body of the church and applies them to themselves And we may take some tips from corporations and organizations, but we need to always understand that we are unique as a family, God's family. And so, with that thought, uh, let's read just the first two verses, because really that's probably as much as I want to handle at this point. There's a lot more practical things we're going to look at weeks to come, Lord willing. But let's just kind of bank on verse 1 and 2 for a little bit. And so, in honor of this being God's Word, uh, let's stand as we read this. I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 15, and then skip to chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, so we can see the obvious connections. He writes this, verse 15, So you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of buttress of the truth. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You may be seated. So always keep in mind this is Paul writing to a, a younger man Timothy, as he is working as an elder in the church of Ephesus, this younger man, somewhere probably in the age of 30 to 35, uh, knowing his role as an elder, as an overseer uh, in this church as a pastor, it involves sometimes talking to people, uh, and sometimes, especially as he's brought out in chapter 4, dealing with matters of faith, deviant faith, errors in faith. Uh, in chapter 4, he was very uh, clear that saying that some have departed from the faith and, and that he has given warning that we make sure that we keep watch over the teachings and over ourselves personally to make sure that we are in line with the faith. And just the slightest uh, variant, and you add time to it and you go grossly off course from what the gospel is. And so... That's why Paul is saying, be careful, be careful. The thing about the church that gives us a lot of hope is that the church is within, because of the gospel, self-corrective. If you look in history of the church, you'll find periods where we went off base big time. Example, crusades. Okay? You look in church history and we are still trying to recover from the deviant variant of a church saying it is okay to attack people and kill them to get territory back for what they called God's kingdom. That was wrong, and it was gross, and it was a lot to recover. But the hope is is that somewhere along the way, churches recognize this was wrong, and they're self-corrective. 
whether it's uh, the slavery issues of the 1800s, 1700s uh, of, of England, that the correctives come in William Wilberforce, Wilberforce, who understands what the gospel is saying and that we've gone off and God used them, or whether it's uh, the Abraham Lincolns and the, and the Christians up north fighting against the Christians down south, uh, in a lot of ways, of the slavery in America. Or whether it's the civil rights issues of the 1960s, things that we've been blind to, but yet God uses believers at different times to, to see it through the gospel that this is wrong. And so our great hope as a church is that within us, what forms us, within it is a kernel of truth that will correct us when we go off base. Now that being said, rebuke has its place. And I want you to see something in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, um, that the crux of the matter is dealing with correction. And verse 1, where it says, Do not rebuke an older man. What is being said, and this is the, the only place in the New Testament where we see this particular word for rebuke. And what it means literally is more of striking somebody with words. All right? You're hitting somebody with words, and so you're pummeling them. It has a, an, a violent aspect to it that involves your words. And so this is not just correcting somebody. This is verbally pummeling someone. And so when he says, do not rebuke an older man, he says, treat them with respect of their years, and, and do not pummel verbally, do not insult them, do not uh, dress them down, so to speak. Uh, there is another way for this to be done. And so the word is not so much to say not to correct somebody, as much as how it's done. And he said, as, uh, as an alternative to this type of, of rebuke, of severe verbal pounding, that instead, that they are to encourage them or exhort them, which involves a level, a level of kindness and gentleness. But it still involves correction. Okay? There still is a corrective aspect. Now, as you read, notice, he then goes on and, and, and works with all the different segments. So, first lesson number one, we're a family. We're a family. Lesson number two... There is diversity in family. You think about it. It's an awfully weird family when they're all the same age. Okay? That, that's, you know, something's wrong there. Um, there is a, a diversity of ages, and it is right. It is right for them to be a diversity of ages. Uh, there is uh, somewhat in America now some uh, models of churches where you're targeting all the same age. We're going after the young people of Nightdale, and our church is going to make up, be made up of the young people of Nightdale, and they get that, and they get all the young people, but then the church is unbalanced. And they don't have the seasoning and the wisdom that can come with evaluated experience. And then there are some who are saying, well, we're just going to target all the old people of Nightdale, of Raleigh. And they may not intentionally say that, but they do it by their actions. And so they do that, and they get all the old people of a certain area, and then they lose the youth. 
And what comes with that of the passion, desire, and vibrancy that can come with the, with the young people. And so then they too are also unbalanced. And uh, one of the things that we are so blessed in, in our church is that we've got both. We've got older and we've got younger. And the idea is to learn from one another, not to uh, say to one group, you're not welcome. You, you are not received here. But to say together, we need one another. We desperately need one another and we want to walk with each other and talk with each other and so you get that Uh, it it makes as much sense to have church just for one age group as it does to have church for one gender i mean who's going to do that this is the church of the men (laughs) what are y'all laughing (laughs) and then this is the church of the women i mean it doesn't make any sense and so it is to be right to be with one another in ages and gender. And I would add also, as they did in the early church, of ethnicity. Now, there's going to be challenges that come with that. But there's same challenges that come with the gender, same challenges that come with age. And we've got to learn how to communicate with one another and how to work together. It is critical. And so, uh, just simply, church is a family, and a church is a family with different age groups. Now, because of that, we, we work according, because of these two simple principles. Uh, we treat other people the way we would treat members of our own family. And so he goes in specifically with the elder man, uh, and he says simply, this is, not, this is not an age group that you would uh, dress down and publicly, verbally abuse, or privately, verbally abuse, but treat them, notice, as you would a father. Do it with the respect and I think it's important sometimes to say, don't just say as a father. Treat them as your father. Treat them. These are fathers that God has blessed you with. Some of us had fathers who died young. Some of us who had fathers that left. Some of us who have fathers, but they're not spiritual fathers. We need men who are willing to be fathers. Because you are a father and you will be recognized as a father by the Lord. And I would say that we're going to be held accountable by the Lord as fathers. When you're in our church, he says, this is your role. Younger, treat them like that. Sometimes there's going to be points where you have to correct them. But do it as you do your father because they are your father. That happens even as in our biological uh, families, that there's a point sometimes where a younger has to correct an older. But they do it lovingly, gently, done with honor. Now, as you keep on reading, you see it goes on. Younger men as brothers. Younger men as brothers. Now, the thing is about what most young men want is they want to be held with some degree of respect. And this is going to come from their elders more than anyone else. To say that we will acknowledge you and we will regard you and listen to you and count you as one of us. This is something, older men, that you can offer uniquely. What is it that every son wants to hear from the father? They want to hear their father say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. 
You're doing well. I'm glad you're my son. And that's still true in the church. For the older man, when you see a younger man who is living out the example that Paul gives to us in chapter 4, when he says in verse 12 that you see younger men that live in an example in speech, conduct, and love, and faith, and purity, then when there is correction, still be very careful to understand that they are a brother and treat them with some degree of saying, you know, you're doing well. You're growing when you can see that in their life. And so then you, you cross gender for, the, for Timothy. Verse 2, treat older women as mothers. Same way in regards to your older men is to say, with the women in our body, those who are older, look out for them. Take care of them. Nurture them. Find out how you can help them. As you would your mom. Somewhere along the way, don't you guys remember where you started taking more of a protective role of your mom's? It just kind of clicked every once in a while. It's, that's part of how God made you. Look for those women in our church body that you can say, I want to help whatever you need and take care of. And the blessing of that is they may be a mother to you. I remember when I uh, moved off and, and started on my own living in Boone, North Carolina. and working in, in the church there. And I started looking for those old women. And, and just a few of us started cutting wood for them. I enjoyed cutting wood, so it was a good deal. But you know what? I got the better blessing because I started coming home with pie. I'm thinking, hey, man, this is good. All right? We're not going to do that because of pie. But there is a perk. (laughs) They start treating you as, as mothers when you start treating them as mothers. But there also will come a time. You remember, all this is in the context of correcting one another. And so you're going to correct sometimes an older lady, but do it as you would a mom. How would you go about that? And then the last category was younger women. It's referring again to Timothy. Uh, treat younger women, or do not rebuke an older men, but encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, you notice the phrasing there that he uh, qualifies this with, treat them as a sister, but do so in all purity. Uh, the, the thought is, is just because they're a young woman, doesn't mean that they're there just for your benefit. They're there for you to serve them, to encourage them, and keep in mind that they are sisters in Christ, because that's exactly who they are. And one of the problems of pornography getting into the church, and all the statistics are telling us that that's happening, is that it warps men's thinking and they cannot think of young women as sisters. They've been objectified. And that is not just in the seedy parts of the internet. It is in the commercials. It is what... what Seckler says is G rating. Just because it's PG does not mean it's right. Just because it's a commercial or in a magazine or in a newspaper does not mean it's right. You know what's going on in your heart. And it can very well be that is part of the problem that we cannot even talk 
to a young woman without objectifying. Paul says, or Paul is telling Timothy, treat them as a sister, do so with all purity, or in all purity. And so in other words, we're not going to try to take advantage of situations where they become so dependent upon us because we're just the big brother that's always trying to counsel them and help them, and then things happen. From what folks are saying in the church life, a lot of times for pastors, the problems come in the counseling situations. When they are constantly uh, receiving or helping counsel a young woman who's going through admittedly issues and problems. But because of the emotional connection that is occurring, the guy starts compromising his own mind, his own emotions, uh, that leads to some problems in the church. Sometimes what a young man or a man might need to say is, you know what, in all purity, I'm going to direct you to someone else that can help you here in the situation. And that's where women, you're needed. Older women, we need you to be seeking the Lord because I don't want to direct younger women to older women who is not going to help them spiritually. We need you to be seeking the Lord, to be spending time in the Word of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God, to not go down the traps of where older women tend to go and say, I will have my heart seeking the Lord and so I can be a blessing because I'm going to tell you, younger women need it. I can't do it. It is not right for me to go into counseling, even though I treat them as a younger sister, but in all purity, the best thing might be to do is say, you know, I'm going to meet with you, I'm going to help you out, and I'm going to give you some, some directions. I'm going to bring someone alongside in your life and let them be a blessing to you. That's needed. Now, we've talked about the, the different dynamics of the older men, the younger men, and I have to speak as a man. Um, women... What does it mean to treat a man as a brother? They are not conquest. They're not feathers in her hat and vice versa. Treat them as a brother. Brother can be annoying, can't they? <laughs> but pray for them as you would a brother. Don't engage in activities that you would not want to do with a brother. Don't seek out those opportunities that you would not want to do with a brother. And so it goes back and forth. Now, we cannot escape what this is about. Yes, it's about the relationships and family relations, but it's all about correcting someone. You notice that? Don't, don't forget that and how we're treating older, older men and younger uh, women and, and older women... It's all within the context of a, not rebuking, not verbally harassing and pummeling somebody verbally, but encouraging them, ex- exhorting them. It is still within the context of correcting someone. How do we correct someone? And so let's, I'm going to spend most of the time talking about that. Because this is Paul saying, we've got to exhort one another. We've got to correct one another. And now we know the customers are, or we've got some principles of how to customize that. 
What, what's, what's the problem here? I'm just going to share with you the, the fact that you are a part of the church of the living God. God is alive in His work and that you're part of God's family gives you a unique opportunity to correct someone that no one else can have for the very reason that you're part of God's family, a living God. Let me explain that. Why, why do we not... What reasons do we often not correct someone? Well, the number one is fear, isn't it? I just don't like, and I'm going to be honest with you, I, I have never liked it, and I don't think I ever will like it, correcting somebody. All right? It's not, and those who do like it, stay away from them. <laughs> They're weird, messed up, and abusive. All right? Um, we don't like it. There's fear there. But here's the thing. Why do I correct somebody when I am afraid to do it? It's because I'm a part of the church of the living God, and I'm in God's family. I am more afraid of God than I am losing my reputation. Who else can do that? Who else can say that but for the person who has been persuaded by the Spirit of God and the Word of God of God's love for them? If, if you are enraptured with God's love and you're learning and you're being nurturing, as chapter 4 tells us, to be nurtured in the gospel and the teachings of, of Christ, then we are constantly being encountered with the love of God. And the love of God frees me to do things I'm afraid to do normally because I love Him more. I love Him more. And it is out of love for God, out of obedience to God, that we do these things. Imagine, if I was with you, and, and we were hanging out, and sometimes, as often as the case, I get locked into a conversation, and I stop paying attention to what my kids are doing. And you see them running into the street. And you say, there's the pastor's kids again, running around without shoes on, and they're running in the street. I, I wish the pastor would do something about them. And then they get hit. And he said, I saw your kids playing in the street. I have to admit, there's going to be a part of me that says, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you stop them? Well, pastor, that's your kids. Okay, yeah. But for just love of mankind in general, Please say something. What goes in God's mind who loves every one of His children dearly? And you are loved by God and you know the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in your own life and you see one of God's children running in the street doing dangerous things spiritually. What do you think the Father wants us to do? Or do we simply say, God, I got a problem. But it's not my problem. The fact that we are part of God's family enables us and frees us uniquely more than anyone else to correct. And so it even is greater than our fear. Then sometimes we don't want to correct because of, 
of, well, you know, we, we hear Matthew 7, 1, we've read it, and people remind us that we're not to judge lest we be judged, and we do not want to be judgmental because that is the carnal sin of the age today, being judgmental. Does that really mean that we don't evaluate people's behavior? Is that really what it's saying? When we read that, we find out there's a little bit more to it. He talks about don't remove the speck out of someone else's eye until you remove the log that's out of your own eye first. The point that Jesus was going after was hypocritical judgment condemning people for their sins. Hypocritical condemning of sins. That's not quite the same thing as not judging at all. There is a place for us to evaluate our own heart and life. And Jesus is saying, when you see the sin of someone else and that bothers you, then that's your clue to start looking at yourself. We don't just say, well, I shouldn't judge. Because here's the danger of that. We don't judge and we don't judge ourselves. And that's the problem. And we continue on. The, the sin of other people is to remind us of our own sin, to get us from a, from a hypo, hypocrisy and a life that doesn't examine herself to one that does and confesses our sins. In that same sermon in Matthew 7, he starts talking about lowing people from their fruit. In the same sermon, he talks about that. And so it's not a prohibition against evaluating people's behavior, but it is a prohibition of evaluating people's behavior without looking at your own. You, as part of God's church, are uniquely qualified more than anyone else to do that. Because you have a living God. You're part of a church of a living God who speaks to you and corrects you and challenges and, and exhorts us. And, and because we have that, we are in a better position to evaluate ourselves and confess our sins before we can confront someone else. And that takes us to the third reason why we may not confront someone. Because of our own sin because we are aware of our own sin we know we've got sin in our own life that needs to be cleaned up so we don't say anything because you know they could say the same thing back to us so what's the answer there well i want to assure you the answer is not to continue in unconfessed sin when we see it in someone else as i said before it is a clue it reminds us Confess it. Confess our sin. Know the beauty of forgiveness as we repent and ask God to give us strength to turn from that sin and turn to Him. Guess who is a better position to confront someone? It is the person who has gone through the sin, knows confession, knows the beauty of forgiveness, the blessing of knowing that you're forgiven, and knows the power that can help you to repent. You are better qualified than anyone else to confront someone. I'd rather be confronted by someone who's endured the sin, known forgiveness, and repented of it, than someone who just looks down on it and not knowing what it's like. You're uniquely qualified to do so. Sometimes we don't confront because it's work. I've got my own life. I don't want to confront someone because that's just work. There's another word for that. It's called laziness. Just... I don't want to have to deal with that. 
But that's hardly a good excuse. What if Jesus had that same attitude towards you? I don't want to deal with it. You're uniquely qualified because you are part of God's family. Because you are part of the church of the living God. Because you've known, you've experienced the grace that Jesus has extends and continues to extend. Right? Today, His grace is extending to you today. Not just when you were saved, whenever it was and you confessed it, but continues today. He continues to give it to you, forgiveness to you. And He goes beyond through His Son, Jesus Christ. As you are a recipient, then you pass it on. One of the reasons we don't tend to confront is because of relative morality. Well, maybe we've drunk the Kool-Aid that says there are no moral absolutes. And of all the things, being intolerant is probably the worst things I can do. And if I just correct someone, then I'm going to be guilty of the worst sin possible. The problem with that. is that we are denying the truth of God's word when God's word says that lying is a sin. When, when the truth of God's word says that adultery is wrong, that coveting is wrong, that we are to have no other gods before us, and, and we have stripped the authority of God's word when we apply the relatively to everything. We're part of the church of the living God whose word of God is still working alive in us. And there's things we know that things were saved and things that are making us. We are better qualified than anyone else to confront someone. However, that being said, there's some things you need to be careful of before you correct. One, is your life an example? You notice before you get to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, you get to chapter 4, verse 12. Before we go on exhorting older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, then we also are setting an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Doesn't mean that you have to be perfect, but it does mean that you take seriously your walk with God. And you're going in this direction of being an example. That you acknowledge and you confess your sins when you are not a good example in speech and love, conduct, and faith, purity. And repent of these things. The second thing that you need to be careful of is do you have adequate relationship with this person? Do you know them? Are you treating them like a father? Do they know you as a brother? And this is probably one of the dangerous things of, of a church that's not operating like a family is that we can be part of the same role, but you don't know one another. And you don't know the brother and sister. You don't know them as a father and as a mother, as a son. And so consequently, you don't have many avenues, any roads to correct them in. The correction is to be done in a loving relationship that should mark the church of the family of God. Do you have adequate relationship with them. And, and so this is where especially 1 and 2 comes in and speaks to us that we've got this marked family relationship. Third, simply, do you have the facts? Do you have the facts? Not your theories, not your assumptions. Do you have the facts? 
Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Part of the facts means that you've got more than one perspective. Do you know enough? So communication should be based on truth. You need to make sure you've got the full truth on what's going on, not hearsay. Fourth, do you have the right motives? You have the right objectives. The motive is love. It's to glorify God, to obey Him. But love for God, love for the other. You want to see them restored, not punished. Okay? Uh, you want to see them encouraged, not just torn down. This is where you've got to check it yourself. No one else can do this for you. It's not about giving them a piece of your mind. You don't have a lot, we don't have a lot to spare. It's probably the wrong phrasing there. All right? It's not about just getting something off our chest. It's not about what makes you feel better. I'll feel better if I just tell them about this. That's not the motive. In fact, if there's a part of you that's taking pleasure in it, that's breaks right there. That's breaks. You've got a part of you that, ah, I'm going to enjoy this part. Then you shouldn't be doing it. It's the wrong motivation. You remember your motive is love, and your goal is to build up the body and the person of Christ. But you know what? I can think of no one better to check your motives to help purify yourself than someone who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. You are more qualified to check yourself and your motives than anyone else because the Spirit of God can speak to you through the Word of God, through others, and help you see what we are tended to be blind to see. If I don't have the Spirit of God, I don't have the Word of God, and have God's people around me, I have no hope whatsoever to see blind spots in my life. And I think I'm doing fine and dandy because I can't see what I can't see. Once you've got the motivation, you've got the relationship, you've got the facts, you know your life is one that is going the right way, fifth, do you have the right words? How you say it matters. It's the idea of correcting them and that it brings encouragement. That's the word exhortation. And so, the classic example is Nathan confronting King David in his own sin. Uh, and Nathan using the right words and telling a story form so that David could see it outside of himself. And then when he saw what it was, it was applied to him. This is where it's important. That if you've got someone that's in the know already... Someone you trust, respect spiritually, let them see what you're about to say. Which means you're probably going to have it written down. This is not the time to fly off the cuff and say, hey, help me out here. This is something I've done several times. And they correct the things I'm trying to say. And then, is it the right time? Is it the right time? 
And I think that's also something we see in, in David and Nathan and, and the sin of Bathsheba, that there was a long period of time that occurred, and it was under the leadership of the Lord when Nathan made the confrontation. This is why it's so important to seek God's Spirit, to be controlled by Him and say, God, I need to know when this happened. And when you're burdened, when you're burdened and you see someone's sin and you observe it, the first thing is a burden which brings you to prayer. And that's where you should stop unless the Spirit of God continues on. But the first thing is prayer. And as that burden grows and you go through these other checks, then... That's the time to do this. And then, seventh, are you prepared to risk rejection and attack? Are you prepared prepared to risk rejection and attack? Just because you follow the Lord and you've checked yourself and your heart and motives and you're following the Spirit of God does not mean that it will be well-received. And to think that it will be, I think, is fooling yourself. They may attack you. They may say, I'm not going to talk to you. That may very well be what happens. But you know what? You are better prepared than anyone else because you are a part of the church of the living God and God's family. What do I mean? You don't put up friendships as idols. You don't put up family as idols. Your hope is not in that relationship. You receive joy and benefit out of that. But your delight and your joy ultimately is in Jesus Christ and you're learning what that means to say, I may lose father and mother, I may lose brother and sister, I may lose wife and husband and child, but I have Jesus Christ and God has learned and taught me to love Him and seek Him above all things. There is no one better qualified than the person who is sold out for Jesus, who has his hope in Jesus Christ, that can with freedom still endanger a relationship with confronting them with the truth. There's no one else that can do that. Except for the person who's a part of God's family. You see how the gospel frees you to do that? But at the same time, the gospel produces a caring person? Because, you know, what would happen if someone says, you know what, I don't really care about this friendship. I, I can take it or leave it. Um, I, my hope is in, in other things. You know what the tendency of that person is, that apart from Jesus Christ? <laughs> they are not gentle. They are not kind. They just say, bam, there it is. I'm up front, direct. No wondering what I think. And they go on their merry way. And you're left wounded by someone that you think, yeah, they don't really care about me. They didn't do it with gentleness. Did it with pride. And they reject it because of that. The gospel produces a unique person that can do this. Who knows humility, who knows gentleness, and does it with love, but at the same time can do so and not have their hopes set on them. That's unique. And what the gospel can do, because you're part of the church of the living God, part of his family. So, just some things to think of if and when you do this. And let me just say this. When you see this in the church, it's not necessarily just the pastors to do. Because honestly, your relationship may be better than mine. 
It could be upon you because you're the one who has the burden. And you see it and you're praying about it. To confront someone as their father, as your brother, as your sister, as your mother, as your son. So do it privately in that the sin is private. Or publicly as the sin is publicly. Do it in the same sphere of influence that the sin is being done in. For example, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says, do it one-on-one first. But in cases like Galatians 2, verse 11 through 14, Paul publicly rebukes Peter and does it. I mean, read that, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. It's pretty upfront. Because Peter is sinning publicly before all. And so Paul is doing it in the same sphere that sin is going on. Uh, Do it cautiously. Be wise in how you do it. And this is where we go back to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Let your relationship govern this, whether it's father and mother, son or daughter, brother or sister. That it informs us, be direct. Don't let them guess about what you're saying. It needs to be some clarity in this. Humble. Humble. Galatians 6.1 If any man is overtaken in a sin, let he who is spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Be humble. That's something you can do because you know the forgiving work of Christ. Because There is the living God in your life, and you're part of his family. Be humble, not gentle, or not judgmental. Be gentle and firm. Right here, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man. Do not shark them uh, rebukely with sharpness. Do not uh, verbally strike them. There should be a gentleness about this. And then be able to, to point them to God's word. When you're confronting someone, you're not confronting them about style. Okay? You're confronting them about sin. There's a difference, and sometimes we get it confused. So consequently, if you're confronting them about sin, there needs to be scripture that you can point to. Because when it's said and done, you don't want them leave you don't want to leave them struggling with your opinion. You want to leave them struggling with God. And so pointing to Scripture for them to continue to read and think through so that they know that their fight is not with flesh and blood, that their fight is with God. And that they can get that and see that. And that's why God's Word is so important that you can point to and direct them to. And then be persistent. In other words, just because you told them once does not mean that your hands are clean. I told them. I'm going to go on. Be persistent. Let me just bring to your mind, how did Jesus treat you? How did God deal with you? Did he just convict you of your sin once? And said, okay, I convicted them. They die now. That's it. I found... See in the examples in Scripture, I see it in my life, that God has convicted me many times. 
sometimes over the same sin. He has been loving, merciful, loving faithfully, steadfast in His love. Why is that so important? Because I have been so disloyal in my reciprocal love. And I need a steadfast love that overcomes my fickleness. Aren't you glad that God has been steadfast in His love toward you, His mercy toward you, His forgiveness toward you? Let us, by His Spirit, exhibit the same to one another. When the Bible calls us the church of the living God, God's family, and says treat each other as family, yes, it brings up good memories of sharing one another's burdens and laughing with one another and praying with one another, but on the other end that we don't think about is forgiving one another, bearing with one another, that the loving of one another deals with a lot of covering the multitude of sins aspect of things. And so in a church like this, in any church you go in, there will always be a multitude of sins. And the larger the church, the more of them. But I found that it's not isolated to large churches. I found small churches have just as much sin. All I need is just one person. I have a church by myself and I've got a multitude of sins. When I have two or three, it's there. I need love to cover the multitude of sins. And I need the love that goes in my own heart that forgives. And a love that goes from forgiveness to even confronting someone else. And there's no one better that can do that than the people that are around you who have been bought by God's grace, who have the love of God in their heart, who have the Spirit of God in their life, who knows what it is to have their hope, not in their relationship, but a hope in Christ. And they've got the boldness and humility to do it. So what does that mean? Well, for all of us, it means go back to chapter 4. Train ourselves in godliness. Be nurtured with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teachings of it. Let that form us, frame us. And the fact is, I'm a better pastor if I'm nurtured in God's word. And the church is better when you, as a member, is nurtured in God's word. You think, well, what does it matter If I don't have time in God's word, no one knows. I don't know what you do each day, but it becomes evident what you do each day. It becomes evident. That's why we have tests, isn't it? The test is not just to reveal all that you studied that morning. Some of us do that. The test is to reveal what's been going on in our thinking throughout. Sometimes when someone sins against you, it is a test it's not all that you cram in at that moment, but how you've been nurtured in God's word. It becomes evident when you don't spend time seeking the Lord daily. But the good news is God is seeking you daily. Will you respond to him? Let's pray.